There's crispy, and then there's crispy, er. Try our new and improved Tyson crispy chicken strips. Crispy just got crispy, er. When you see Colin Kaepernick, when you see Yara Shahidi, when you see Simone Biles and others stand up, they need people standing behind them. Hello, everyone. You're listening to HBCU 468, the Roden Fellows podcast, where we talk about sports and culture from the perspective of HBCU students. I'm Bill Roden, and I'm on the line with my co-host, Aaron Mathewson in New York. Hi. Whitney Bronson from Hampton University. Hello, everyone. And Jamal Murphy, a contributor to The Undefeated, and my co-host on the Bill Roden on Sports podcast. And probably now... I'm not sure if you're grieving the Knicks or you're celebrating. What's going on, Bill? You know, there's just another day in Knicks uh, fandom. That's all. Nothing new. Right, right. And then last, and well, certainly our, our great guest. I don't know. If, I don't know if I guess is a Knicks fan or like me. He's given up being a fan years ago. Uh, our guest is the great Ed Gordon. Ed Gordon is the uh, the president of Ed Gordon Media. Uh, which is a multi-service production company. But for this purpose, he's also the author of a wonderful, a really wonderful book called Conversations in Black. It's really a, a much-needed book. A lot of different points of view, look at the whole kaleidoscope of uh, African-American thought. Uh, just really a, a great and a timely book. Uh, I guess it's great. Ed Gordon. Thank you, and hello to all of you. And no, I am not a Knicks fan, but I am a suffering Piston fan. So it's oh, about- oh, God. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> That's even worse. It may no, be- at, least, at least they have some championships. We have, wow. we have had some championships in their lifetime, though, Bill. I will say that. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's no. Absolutely, you're right. You're, you're, in fact, you actually have more recent success than the Knicks. Oh, absolutely. What? That's not hard to do, so. <laughs> <laughs> Yet another shot. <laughs> hey, Ed, listen, man, you, you, you've got such a deep and rich history. You know, your Emmy Award uh, winning broadcaster. Uh, in fact, we, we had a tremendous uh, show for, for years in BET, uh, Conversations. I think I may have been on the show once or twice. But this book, man, is really just a powerful, powerful book. Why don't we just get right into it and talk about why you decided to write this this particular book and at this particular time? Actually, Bill, I started the idea for this book in 2012 and had begun the interviews. The idea was to gather together uh, a number of influencers and leaders to talk about the state of Black America and where we where we were, and then I picked up a television project and, and had to put the book down and, and move forward. And uh, I looked at the world oh, a little over a year ago and said to myself, man, this is a great time to kind of restart that idea. And I, just to show you the change in the eight years, uh, one of the participants in the book at the time uh, in 2012 was Bill Cosby. Mm. Uh, I had done an interview with him. Uh, the, the wonderful and, and great uh, Maya Angelou was, was one of the people in the book, and of course she has left us since. Trayvon Martin had just been killed. Barack Obama was in his second term. So the world changes, as we know. Uh, but what I was able to do 
was take a look at uh, where we sit with 40-plus of today's thought leaders. And, uh, and what I wanted to do, and the impetus was always uh, to talk to people, and Bill, you know, often some of the most intriguing parts of the conversation happen before or after you start a board. Exactly. And so I wanted to capture that, uh, and I said to myself, I've interviewed so many great people over my years in broadcasting, almost three decades now. I said it would be great if I could get all these people in one room, but, but I knew that would be an p- impossibility with the caliber of people we were shooting for. So what we have in this book is a virtual conversation amongst all of us. None of us were together. I was the linchpin of all of this, uh, but I wrote it as a conversation, as if we were all in one room, and each chapter is a different topic, and, uh, you know, the lineup is stellar, and I just appreciate the candor that everyone brought to the project. You got Harry Belafonte, Charlemagne the God, Eric Dyson, Jamil, uh, Eric Holzer. I mean, you got a lot of Al Sharpton, Maxine Waters. It, was this sort of an attempt to try to find the new common denominator in our community? Yeah, it was an attempt to find new narratives. I think that the African-American community has kind of reached a plateau. Uh, There's no question that we have seen tremendous strides in this country over the last 50 years. I think we plateaued in some areas, and there is a need for um, new narratives, if you will. I mean, you know, I wanted to have a broad-based conversation. Some of the people there are what I call the usual suspects, you mentioned Al Sharpton, you know, Mark Morial from the Urban League. Right. We have Maxine, Maxine Waters. But we also have Killer Mike and, and T.I. We have Michael Steele um, and uh, Shemichael uh, from the right. Uh, we've got different ideologies. We've got people who started movements, April Rain, who started Oscar So White, and uh, Tarana Burke, who started the Me Too movement. We've got one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter, Alicia Garza. Uh, and I wanted to talk about where we, where we sit today. Uh, and it covers not just politics, but pop culture. It covers black leadership, which really falls into a number of categories. As we know, black leaders have not only always been from politics or the pulpit. You know, you think about athletics. You think about what Colin Kaepernick has done. You think about, uh, in the past, what... Jim Brown and Kareem Jabbar and so many others uh, have done over the years. And so I wanted to take a broad-based look at, at where we sit and, and what we need to do to move forward. And finally, most importantly, I wanted the conversation to be the start, not the finish. We talk about things. We hold a lot of panels. We do a lot of town hall meetings. I have certainly participated in enough of them over the years, but our hope is that this will be the spark you have people start their own conversations and then move to actionable items and movement. And we hope this will be, uh, you know, the start of something like that. Hi, Ed. So this is Whitney. So I was wondering, what do you think of what will happen, you know, in the future, considering some of the young leaders that we have right now, such as, you know, Yar Shahidi, Little Miss Flint, Simone Biles, and the way that they're standing up for what they believe in? and talking about certain issues that need to change. So what do you think is going to be their impact on the future? Well, what I'm most pleased by, I mean, I've gotten to know Yara over the years, and what I've seen with young athletes and entertainers in particular 
is less of a fear to have a political stance, to use your platform, to raise your voice and say that things need to change, uh, not only, uh, you know, in the fields that they've taken on, but across the country. I think, um, you know, in the 60s, we saw that um, and, and early 70s, but certainly in the 80s and 90s. Um, in early 2000s, we saw a lot of athletes and entertainers become silent. I think for fear of losing, you know, their livelihood, um, the political pressure that would be put on them by ownership and others um, was real. And it took, you know, brave individuals to to walk out there and stand up. And so uh, I've been more than pleased to see um, you know, a younger generation stand up and move. But I, I hasten uh, to say that um, that does not necessarily mean that all um, millennials and Gen Zs and Xers and the like are out there doing what they need to be. It's much like the civil rights movement. The reality is so few actually stand up and take a stand out loud and on the front lines. You know, uh, it, it's cliche now, but liking something on Facebook or um, Instagram is nice, but it's not going to affect the same kind of change as if you really physically move to do something beyond just sitting on, on the couch, and that's what's needed. So when you see a Colin Kaepernick, when you see Yara Shahidi, when you see um, Simone Biles and others, um, you know, we're starting to see Serena Williams and others stand up, um, they need people standing behind them. Um, and, and in more ways than just saying, you know, yeah, I'm going to buy your T-shirt or your shoes or, uh, you know, whatever kind of uh, easy move, if you will, um, to back these people. You know, you, you need to stand up, I think, to a great degree. Uh, Black America let down Colin Kaepernick to, to, uh, to some degree by means of not standing in a, in a more vocal and more supportive way. Uh Ed, this is Jamal, uh, and you, you know, I've heard you say in the past, and you're speaking to it now, that uh, African Americans have a lot more power than we think we have. And then, you know, Bill and I usually talk, you know, about it on a, on a sports level, and you brought up Kaepernick. And that was my question to you. You know, Kaepernick uh, stood, you know, stood up, took a knee, uh, basically for, you know, black people, and, then, and he was kind of still in isolation. Not many players yeah. followed his followed suit. Uh, and even fans, like you said, uh, fans really didn't, for the most part, stop watching football or, or you know, cause the NFL any kind of uh, financial damage. What do you think, in specifically the sports realm or the NFL, what do you think, you know, why is that? Why didn't more players stand with Kaepernick? I think it's simply fear. I mean, you know, it, it takes a lot to stand up and put your livelihood on the line. And so while not being too Pollyanna about it, just imagine if the vast majority of African-American players uh, or even half of the African-American players, including some uh, superstars and stars, would say, okay, you know what, Cap, I'm not going to kneel every game, uh, but I am going to sit behind you for week three of the season. And all of a sudden we're going to find some NFL flu that's going around that will cause us not to play just for week two, just for week three. You know, one or the other, take your pick. Um, we're going to come back. We're going to play the rest of the season, but we're going to do that. And in solidarity, African-Americans said, uh, we're not coming to the games on that week. We're not going to, you know, I, I quite frankly last year, uh, or when Cap started, uh, canceled my NFL package. 
you know, right. uh, and I do not watch the games in the same way. I'm not going to be a hypocrite and say I, I, I don't watch any of the games, or I, you know, I certainly watched the Super Bowl this year. But there were measurable things that I decided to do. I don't buy NFL memorabilia. I don't, you know, there are things that I'm trying to do on a personal level to impact change. And so I would love to see us, uh, in a way, galvanize um, the power that we do have and utilize it again. Imagine if these guys said, just for one week, we're not going to play in solidarity. The, the owners would not fire all of those folks. You'd have no NFL. Right. Um, there's a chapter in your book that focuses on uh, blacks in Hollywood and kind of our, our uh, media representation. And, you know, this year there's been a lot of complaints about the Oscars and the, the BAFTAs and how so few people of color were nominated for, like, the major categories. And I'm wondering, what do you think about that, especially after we're three years after Oscars So White? And how do you think that influences the roles black people choose to play? So, as I mentioned, April Rain is in the book. She's the woman who started the Oscar So White movement a few years back. And I think what we're seeing is certainly that movement uh, woke up people to admitting that there were some issues of diversity in Hollywood. Um, but it didn't cure anything uh, in a real sense. And I think to a great degree... Uh, what we're seeing is, again, the continued regression that the black community often sees, you know, one step forward, two steps back. So the idea of uh, Oscar so white being eliminated, well, clearly that's not true, because if you don't think it was so white this year, it was at least very pale. And so <laughs> I think what we right. have to do, I think what we have to do is make sure that we understand what we're shooting for. Um if I'm an actor, I understand why I want to be nominated for an Oscar because, quite frankly, that allows me to ask for, um, you know, a larger salary for my next role. But as a fan, I don't really care at the end of the day anymore whether somebody wins or is nominated for an Oscar. I was on the phone the other day with um, uh, Omari Hardwick of uh, Power, and that show has resonated particularly within the black community and Ghost. This character has become one of those seminal characters from television, yet, uh, you know, never uh, nominated for an Oscar, barely a blip on the screen of those who vote for it. But I, I told him that does not mean that your character is not impactful and that your art is not great. It just means that there's a community of people who know very little about it, and that's their ignorance and continue to do the work you do. And so... I think the remedy is what we have seen Tyler Perry do, and that is ownership. Uh, and that is the ability to, you know, create the art that you want to create without someone else green lighting it. And in the chapter, there is a lot of talk about Tyler Perry. The chapter is called The Medea Dilemma because, you know, the extra added burden of being black and uh, creating art is that. Uh, you know, your people want you to create a certain kind of art. And if it is deemed stereotypical, uh, it can be problematic, no matter how many people love it. I mean, it's not like Tyler Perry doesn't have an audience. He has a huge audience. And so uh, what we have to do is really stop worrying about other people voting us um, as great or wonderful or worthy and go on about creating and finding ways to um, incorporate you know, finance into the projects that, that we want. Yeah, our guest is uh, the great Ed Gordon. His book is 
conversations in black. I just Ed, I, I have to mention uh, that your father, uh, Ed Lansing Gordon Jr., uh, was a gold medalist in the 1932 Summer Olympics in a long jump. Uh, that's I mean that's yeah. a big deal. Yeah, that should have led the show. <laughs> uh, you know it's 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 wonderful. He was around, and my dad was an older father, so. Uh, you know, uh, in 32, uh, you know, coming uh, right before Jesse Owens, and he was contemporary of Eddie Tolan and Ed Metcalf, yeah. and I got to know all of those cats. And at one mm. time in Detroit, you mm. had Eddie Tolan, my father, Ed Metcalf, mm. and Jesse Owens just down the way in Ohio, um, all, you know, hanging out and, and, and living in proximity of one another. And so... Uh, you know, I remember a story that Eddie Tolan told about my dad, and he said, you know, your father was something else. Uh, my father was not as light as I, but he was a lighter brown than Eddie Tolan, and he was traveling with Eddie, and they didn't want to let Eddie in, and they were going to let my father in. And my father told them if they didn't let he or Eddie in, neither one of them would be performing on Saturday. Mm. My father went to the University of Iowa and told the coach, look, if you want me to jump on Saturday, uh, either you stay in the same hotel I stay in or I'm going to stay in the same hotel you're going to stay in, but I'm not staying somewhere else. Mm. And so, you know, you think about back then the kinds of things that African-American athletes had to face. Um, and those that were brave enough to be able to say those kinds of things and utilize their talents to say, look, you know, if, if you're going to exploit me for my talent, uh, I'm going to get everything that is deserved of uh, anyone who is as talented as I am. And I, I don't care about race, race be damned. And so uh, it was an extraordinary opportunity for me to kind of sit around and hear, hear those stories. You know, Ed, uh, you bring up a great point. You know, you, you mentioned something that this kind of connects with Pat Mahomes and African Americans and our whole kaleidoscope of colors. Your father, you said, was was you know lighter skin, light skin, but he clearly identified himself as black and was identified as black. And I think a lot of people were sort of in the tither during the Super Bowls. You know, Pat Mahomes, who's biracial, and that's the difference. You know, back back in the day, we didn't call ourselves biracial. We just Light skin black. So if you red, red black, right. or bright, you know, right. <laughs> you know. But you know, uh, somebody asked him something. He said, "Well, yeah, I'm a black quarterback. You know, my father's black and my mom's white and all that." But it just, you know, hearing you tell that story, just you know, reminds me that that we come in all shapes, sizes, and colors. But there's a a larger spiritual identity as being black, and it's, back in it was like it was never a thing. It was just, and it wasn't a negative. It was just you know, that's who we are. Yeah, you know, in the book, there's a chapter called Am I Black Enough for You? And we deal with the uh, mm-hmm. issue of how we identify who, and you know, is black and what is authentically black, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, we, we do run the rainbow. As I said, you know, I am what many people would consider high yellow, and my mother was that, and my and my father was, you know, a, a, a lighter brown. And, and then, you know, you've got people who uh, run the range from, you know, what we used to call blue-black or midnight-black to right. you know, high-yellow folk. And so, um, you know, but, but we all suffer uh, the indignities of being black. I always tell people at the end of the day, uh, you know, if when we get 
uh, you know, um, pushed to the side or if, if they ever, heaven forbid, something like this, you know, come to round us up, they're not going to say, oh, well, Ed's like, let him, let him over here with us. <laughs> right. you know, I'm going to go with everybody else. And so, right. Right. you know, right. at the end of the day, uh, you know, what defines blackness? You know, is it your color? Is it the hue? And if it's the hue, then what you're saying is, uh, Louis Farrakhan is not as black as Clarence Thomas, and would right. many of us really live with that? And so, it's an interesting, uh, you know, uh, hurdle for us to continue to have to jump when there's so many other people out here who, you know, attack people of color. Um, that that we need to get past that. You know, we yeah. really do. We've been saying it for generations, but right. um, you know, at the end of the day, I think it's. Um, really who you are inside that defines, you know, whatever that nebulous term of blackness is far more than, you know, your outward appearance. Yeah, this has been tremendous, and I hope uh, you're on a million more shows. I hope everybody gets this book and has these kind of conversations because they really are, they really are very important to, to have. The history lessons, sort of the, uh, the autobiographical aspect of it. Uh, you, you lived a very, you are living a very rich, rich and uh, historic life, man. So uh, just all the best, man. Uh, just because you really have had a, a, a you know a tremendous career, and uh, um, you know just just kudos to you. Thank you all, and I, Bill. Let me just take a second to thank you, man, because before I became quote Ed Gordon. You know, and I was just kind of starting out at BET and doing, you know, Bill Roden was one of those guys who had a name and it would come on our shows. And so, Bill, I've, I've never forgotten that, uh, and I greatly appreciate it, man. Oh, all good, man. Our guest has been uh, the great uh, Ed Gordon. He's the president of Ed Gordon Media. Uh, more importantly, he's the author of a wonderful book, uh, Conversations in Black. Uh, Ed, th- thanks so much, man, and just the best of luck. We're going to take a short break. When we return, we'll discuss the latest drama for the Knicks and a recap of the Super Bowl. Welcome back to HBCU 468, the Roden Fellows podcast. And just if you're wondering, where are all the fellows? Uh, well, Whitney is here with us, but um, uh, the, the, the fellows are producing uh, uh, what's going to be a great podcast series uh, that dovetails with the year of the black quarterback. Uh, each fellow, uh, each fellow is producing uh, their own, uh, his own, his and her own uh, podcast. Uh, about the year of the black quarterback. In fact, Whitney, Whitney, which, uh, what, what are you producing? Uh, what, what's, what will be your contribution to this, uh, to the podcast series? Well, I will be reviewing scripts, editing scripts, and then, um, putting together the audio and editing the audio that each of the fellows send in. Mm-hmm. So you, you'll be more of a producer. How's, how's it going? How's the series going? Um, it looks very good so far. Um, I know Arthur, he has, um, I'm not going to spill the beans on what he's doing, but his script was very good, very well put together, um, told a really great story. So I look forward to hearing his, and I'm still looking at everybody else's scripts as well. 
So I think it'll be a very good podcast series, though. You're very excited. We're really looking forward to it. Uh, um, before we come back, I, uh, before we left, we talked about uh, wanting to get into the uh, the changes in New York, the Knicks. Uh, for whatever reason, whatever you say Knicks, your ratings go off the chart, no, even though they've been hopeless for years. So we're going to say Knicks, 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 Knicks. But uh, before that, uh, I know Aaron was discussing something off air. She wanted to ask uh, a question about uh, Kobe Bryant and um, – yeah, you know, I was in Miami for a long time, and 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 uh, Kobe's death and his daughter and, and the other seven who were on the plane really cast a huge shadow. Uh, but Aaron, excuse me, you you brought up a question. It's actually a good point of perspective about um, sort of the third wave of comments. You know, after you get past the emotion and all that about Kobe's legacy. But what were you what were you saying? Sure, you know. Watching all the the outpouring um, after Kobe's death and just seeing how many people he impacted in so many different sports, so all over the world, uh, you know he was he's been called the last apolitical uh, NBA player. And although you know Jamel Hill did say he had kind of sort of come to speak out more, like on things like Trayvon Martin, and you know he was definitely a big supporter of the WNBA and women's basketball. He wasn't really, he wasn't a LeBron James. Like, I didn't expect to hear him about China or anything. And, and yet he had, he seemed to impact so many people. And I feel like it's almost a, a point in the other direction. It's like you can get a lot of love and impact a lot of people without being political. Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, that's a good point. I don't know what Jamal and Whitney think. But yeah, I mean, you know, whenever you say something, take a stand, you're going to piss off the other half. Right. Uh, And I think Kobe, you know, very practical. You know, he, he kind of let his actions speak for him. But I don't know that that's a good point. What, what do you guys think, Whitney and Jamal? Do you think that by him not saying a lot uh, and that therefore pissing off a lot of people that helped him? I think in a certain in a certain light, it can help them. Um, I mean, obviously, there are some closed-minded people who believe that athletes should just keep whatever they're doing on the court or on the field. So. Of course, they would appreciate that, I guess. But like you said, I think in Kobe speaking louder with his actions than his words, that had a very large impact, too. And um, in terms of Jamel Hill's comments, I kind of agree with her, especially in terms of the WNBA. Um, Kobe was a huge supporter of the WNBA and women's basketball, women's sports in general. He has um, a part of his Mamba Academy. He has a volleyball team um, because I believe his oldest daughter uh, plays volleyball. So just in doing that, I think says a lot because there are still a lot of people who, you know, believe that women, they're not on the same level as men in terms of certain sports. Um, But the fact that he's saying how much, he loves his daughter playing basketball and he would, you know, doesn't necessarily care that he doesn't have a son to carry on his legacy. His daughter's going to carry on his legacy. I think that speaks volumes in all honesty. And in a certain way, it does get political just because of the mindset that people still have, that women still aren't on the same level as men in terms of sports. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think it's a stretch to say he's the the last apolitical NBA player. First of all, there will be more of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. <laughs> plenty more. And, and the long line. Or I guess I would say yeah, star. So would, yeah. Last <laughs> political NBA star. Yeah, no, I, hear, that's... I hear what you say. 
And then, and then I agree totally with Jamal. I've been saying it all week. I mean, he, you know, I started to like him more in retirement because he, he started to speak, you know, for one of the reasons was um, he started to speak out more on, on issues. I mean, we were just talking about Kaepernick. Uh, Kobe said that he was, on, he was with Kaepernick. He said that if he were playing basketball at that time, he would take a knee. That's what he said. Now, would he really do that? We don't know. You're right. Um, because, because like you said, during his career, he was, he was much less political. He didn't really say much besides basketball, but I, I take that to mean, you know, we, we always talk about Kobe being, you know, singularly focused, um, you know, trying to be the best. I mean, he wasn't thinking about anything but basketball, probably, right. you know, knowing <laughs> right. Kobe. So, so right. you know, he had to wait till he, he had more time and he wasn't, you know, he didn't have basketball to worry about and he became more, more political. Now, as for, you know, people liking him more because of that, I, you know, I don't, I don't really buy that too much either. Uh, because I, you know, I think if, when LeBron passes, you know, especially if it, if it were in a situation as shocking as Kobe, you you get the same you'd get the same reaction. And then you know, look at people like Muhammad Ali, who were you know who were right. revered throughout his career, revered you know once he passed, you know his funeral was was you know every you know everybody attended the funeral, everybody respected and loved Muhammad Ali, and he was by far he was the farthest thing from apolitical. So you know, I, I really. I don't buy much of it, to tell you the truth. Yeah, and just a couple of minutes we have left. Again, you know, Jamal, I tell you, you're a huge uh, Knicks fan. Do you think it's a step in the right direction that uh, my friend Steve Mills was yes. – <laughs> how, how is that for a leading question? Was, uh, <laughs> was, was dismissed uh, uh, as, as a president. Can we tweet the, that, uh, Bill, that you're friends? Yeah. <laughs> was, no, I won't repeat that. <laughs> Well, you know, first of all, I got I'm not really a passionate Knicks fan anymore. I, you know, I was a, I would I was probably in, up through college then it started to wane. Um if anything, you know, I'd said, you know, I have to be root for the Nets if anything because I'm born and raised in Brooklyn and they have Brooklyn on the chest. But as far as and I do root for, you know, I'm root for the Knicks, but they are harder and harder to root for. As far as Steve Mills being fired, I think I think they had to do it. I think, you know, uh I think it was Frank Isola and some other people uh posted on Twitter a picture of all the you know, all of the past twenty years plus of Nick's history, running from Isaiah, um, through Phil Jackson, through Jeff Hornacek, through uh, you know, uh Fisdale and each one of those press conferences there was a picture that included Steve Mills. So he's been there throughout this this, you know, complete ineptitude that, you know, you have to be honest, they have, the Knicks have been terrible these past 20-plus years or so. So, um, and he's and he's the guy that's that's been there, the, you know, been been there each time, along with Dolan. And we know, but the problem is you're not going to get rid of Dolan. He owns the team. So I do think they had to make a move. And I like, you know, Scott Perry has been on the last, he's, he's been with the Knicks the last three years. Um, and since he's come on, I've liked the draft picks. Um, they've made much better draft picks. Um, so I, I, I see some of his, you know, eye for talent um, in the organization now, and he's the interim. My only thing is he probably will not get, you know, the full-time gig, which I think he would probably deserve, and I would like to see what he could do. But, you know, the Knicks, as always, are going to look for the shiny object and try to bring it in. So we'll see. Yeah, we shall see. What do you, what, what do you think about them bringing in uh, Masai uh, from uh, Toronto? I mean, if I, if I'm the Knicks, that's great. Now, if I'm Masai, I don't know, 
if you want to do that or not. You know, I mean, I guess not, not for all if they, the teams, if they huh? offer you, we, <laughs> we talked, we talked off air. If, if they offer him fifty million, and you're saying that might not be enough. No, I, I, no, because you can't. All you've got, and this goes for anything. All you got is your name, and there's no price on your good name. So you right. know, he's guaranteed to have his name ruined if he comes mm-hmm. here, because the one person who needs to leave will not leave until he leaves this earth, and that's the that's the owner. So right. um, I have a question about that. Is there any? I mean, I know we've only seen um, Clippers owner uh, get ousted but is there any other way sterling Sterling, thank you i'm sorry i was thinking don imus i'm like that's not his name um but is there any other way like is there some review that's like you're just not really a great owner like you should you gotta there's Uh, gotta get rid of you well there's no rule i mean you know if you got the money you 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 know you you stay in until you decide to sell and you know the knicks are making money that's part of the problem they're making money hand over fist, hmm. you know, even with the ineptitude, the losing, they make money. In fact, it's because of the ineptitude and the losing that Knicks fans love to lament. They love this stuff. They love the firing and all that. So, you know, no, he, you know, he's just making too much money uh, for the league and for himself. So that's what I'm saying. That's not going to change until there's an ultimate change, you know. Uh, before we leave, I'd like to go back to uh, Whitney, the uh, Roden fellow. Whitney and her former, I mean, fellow colleague, uh, uh, Arthur Cribb, who she referenced about the podcast, uh, as our Roden fellow from Howard University, spent a few days down at the Super Bowl. Hey, hey Whitney, just tell us about your experience. I mean, you, you get in the air to talk about your recovering, so I want to hear about that. <laughs> but uh, tell us about your experience down at the Super Bowl. Well, to clarify, in terms of the recovering, we we were at the Super Bowl for a very long time. Didn't get back to the hotel until about midnight and then had to wake up about five hours later to catch a flight and then come back. So that's what I mean in terms of recovering, trying to get my rest back. But um, the experience was honestly very great. We were there in partnership with the NFL so we sat in on a couple of podcasts. We sat in on a podcast with um, Mr. Takeo Spikes and Tuton Reyes, uh, their podcast Behind the Mask, which was honestly really great as both their former NFL linebackers. So in them talking to other former football players and current football players, they're just able to produce some really great content um, and everything. So that was really nice to be able to talk to them about their experiences and how they got to where they are today. And we also sat in on a podcast with RISE, the Roth Initiative of Sports Equality, and they were talking to um, Mr. Troy Vincent, EVP of Football Operations, um, Chris Carter, Aeneas Williams, and a couple of other players, um, just about race in sports um, and how it was for them coming up in the sports world and how they're trying to make an impact on the younger generation now. And we were able to talk to them a little bit, ask them a little questions before they had to jet to all the events that they were going to. And then we also went to Radio Row, which was at the Miami Convention Center. And that was really cool talking to other journalists as well about how they were able to get to the Super Bowl um, and the interviews that they were doing with players and everything as well. And um, then honestly, one of my most favorite parts of going to the Super Bowl was 
we went to see a documentary about Fritz Pollard, who's the very first African-American coach in the NFL. Um, a lot of people think the first African-American coach in the NFL is Art Shell, um, when it really isn't. It's um, Mr. Fritz Pollard, who was in the NFL, I believe, in the 1920s, um, when it was very getting started then. But the issue was that there was a gap between having African-Americans in the NFL from that time period to when Art Show um, started coming around. So it was really great learning the history around that. And then um, on actual Super Bowl Sunday, we were in the press box and just being surrounded by all of these high-profile journalists and being able to talk to them, get their contact information. It was a great networking opportunity, most definitely. And then also being able to witness history as the third black quarterback, um, or this is the Super Bowl where only the third black quarterback has won one. So that was honestly amazing to see as well. Question for you guys, because Bill, I know you got to run. I didn't see much coverage of people critiquing the name, the Chiefs. You know, like we hear a lot about the Washington team, but nobody really said anything. Do you guys think that's an issue? Or are we just kind of ignoring the native, like racism, racism against Native Americans by not bringing it up? Yeah, I think I think the the R word the Washington team uh, is, is much more offensive. Though I do agree that yeah, I agree. Yeah, I mean that's just terrible. I mean you get rid of cheap, but I I just think the R word is just a much. I don't know what you guys feel. I think that that's a much more a worse, more offensive name. Yeah, I, I mean I, agree I think with that. that the word the I think the word the, the Chiefs you know it symbolizes you know a leader and um, I mean I. Take the logo. What about the logo? The logo yeah. of the arrowhead. Yeah, the arrowhead. That's kind of you know. Eh. But honestly, I agree with Bill that um, the R word, as he put it, um, is so much more worse. Especially their logo is just the absolute worst. Right. And it's just <laughs> right. extremely offensive. We've seen you know a lot of teams change it, but um, ultimately, I feel as if when you maybe look at who the owners are. Um, they're not going to take that initiative to change it, especially when it's not affecting any of their sales. It's not affecting people buying merchandise, people watching the games. Um, nothing's really going to come out of it unless people start speaking up and actually protesting. Yeah. Well, right. listen, guys, this is uh, absolutely uh, a, a, a really a wonderful uh Wonderful uh, show. Uh, we've got you know Ed Gordon, and then of course having Jamal Murphy and Whitney uh, Wayne in, uh, re- having recovered from her Super Bowl experience. Of course, well, she explained. She explained that, Bill. She explained it. Explained that. <laughs> <laughs> was she going to tell us the truth? No, but they were. Aww, <laughs> I believe her. They were really hard. No, no, no. They were really wow. hard. They were, no, and they, I think what you guys, yeah, I think you've known this throughout the year, but, you know, in, in, in our business, it's a lot of long hours. You start early and the end is late, you know, so uh, hopefully that didn't discourage you from wanting to pursue a career in our industry. Oh, no, it's part of, it's part of life, to be completely honest, the long hours. In order to get to where you want to be, you're going to have to work hard and you're going to have to work those long hours until you're the one assigning the long hours to other people, so... <laughs> Word. Oh wow! Now, now isn't that Machiavellian? 
<laughs> get it into control so you don't have to. You can assign Dion to, to spend a long hour so you can go to the beach. <laughs> hey, but I that's the way it is. That's the goal to be the head honcho. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's what B.B. King said, pay the cost to be the boss. So <laughs> I, I'm glad you're learning that lesson early, Whitney, that that's the whole that you're not doing this. Man, you're doing all this stuff for the point of view of being the boss. That's all we have time for today. If there's anything you'd like us to cover, or if you just want to leave us a comment, tweet us at the undefeated, hashtag Rodenfellows. You can also contact us directly. I'm on Twitter at WC Roden. That's at W-C-R-H-O-D-E-N. I am on Twitter at wit underscore bit 98. That is W-H-I-T underscore B-I-T nine eight. This is Jamal. I'm at on Twitter at Blackatologist, B-L-A-C-K-E-T-O-L-O-G-I-S-T. Also the same for Instagram, and you can search me on both under Jamal Murphy, and I'm Jamal Murphy on Facebook as well. And this is Aaron. You can find me at Aaron on Air. That's E-R-Y-N on A-I-R. Thanks for listening to the Rodin Fellows Podcast. This show is produced by the great Aaron Mathewson, and Arthur Krebs from Howard University. Special thanks to Tarika Foster Brasby and the ESPN Digital Audio Content Team. I'm Bill Roden, and I've been your host. Get all the HBCU 468 podcasts by subscribing to the Undefeated on the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Join us next week for another HBCU podcast, and don't forget to make the Undefeated your go-to site for a soulful look at sports and entertainment. Have a great week, everyone.